Oh, yeah. Tell you mm, what that ass do. Hey, let me tell you. Vocal fade. All right, oh, welcome to the podcast, man. everybody. Toby, that was nice. Well, I well, thank you, Matt. You know, I've, you and I have written a lot of music together, and I've been writing some tunes on my own. And to hear you say, you know, you appreciate it, it means a lot to me, actually. Mm-hmm. But, well, we're gonna have a good show today. We got a guest that is terrific. We're gonna talk about. Well, we're gonna talk about social science, the church. The guy's a is a. He's awesome. His name's Ryan, and he is both a Baptist pastor and a social scientist, and he keeps his worlds very separate. But they and inform a genius. Each other. So, so he's great. So you're going to really like that. Uh, we'll get there. Let me tell you, though, about the show today. It's sponsored by Stamps.com, which is one of my favorite sponsors because it's something we've been using a long time. Oh, yeah. I guess five or six years, and two or three years we used them before they became a sponsor, and right. they've been here ever since. So when I talk about Stamps.com, I always wonder who in the world are the people that go to the post office, and yeah. why would they do that? It doesn't even make sense at all. Right. Now, there's no need to interrupt your work or fight traffic or get to the post office, especially now with the holidays when the post office is oh, extra yeah. busy with people sending those holiday cards and gifts. So you need stamps.com because you got to send stuff. You, do, you wish you didn't have to, but you do. So stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Services, but right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, stamps.com can handle it all and with ease, too. So with stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class first stamp and 40% off priority mail. Not well, to mention right. fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Toby, you remember those postage meters? Oh, God, I hated them. I just <laughs> hated them. But they it, seem it, to always be a goofy, outdated technology that people had in offices, but right. know, stamps.com handles it, not to mention... I mean, yeah. So it really is a no-brainer. It saves you time and money, and no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with our promo code BADCHRISTIAN, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Bad Christian. That's stamps.com and enter Bad Christian. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Toby, what you got? Well, and with all those savings from stamps.com, Matt, you can buy more Christmas presents. Isn't that what Sounds your kids want? They, they want presents more than they want a father. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. This podcast started off hot. Good luck. I mean, the music, and then we find out what kind of relationship you have with your children. My God. Commercial. Uh, you know what? This is what's crazy. I don't think my kids would appreciate it now, but they will one day. They, You know, I got a six-year-old. She's not thinking about her bed sheets. She's not thinking about her comforter or pillow. Well, she she loves getting all comfy and stuff like that. So maybe I'm actually wrong. Maybe even at that young age, Brooke Lennon can convince her how important it is to sleep better because they have totally convinced me. And I've said this about a 100 billion times, but I just as a total dude and never thought about sheet a sheet on your bed or a comforter being nice or a pillowcase. I just thought you just get what you get. You don't throw a fit. Now, Brooke Lennon has changed my life because not only is it unbelievably comfortable, 
but I have to admit, it looks really good too. I mean, it looks great. I like the way my bedroom looks with our Brooklyn and products, all the Brooklyn and products we have now in our bedroom. Seriously, I mean, it. You spend a third of your life in the sheets, and for some people like me, this always in the sheets. You know what I'm saying? You oh, I know want, what you mean. Don't you want them to be insanely comfortable? I, that's what I want. Seriously, and this holiday season, it's time to gift the ones you love or yourself with something a little cozier like bedding, loungewear, towels, and more. And I put the emphasis on, on and more because Brooklinen has so much fun stuff. Just go to the site. You're going to check it out. And lucky for you, Brooklinen is celebrating their days of gifting with daily promotions on uh, different items. Uh, uh, so just get over there. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. They were founded in early 2014 by husband and wife Vicky and Rich. And uh, the reason why is because they wanted better, more affordable home essentials, and that's exactly what they did. They have uh, this forty-three-year-old man here is just telling you that I actually care now, and all the products that Brooklyn has is pretty amazing. Uh, if you are like me and you realize that you do care about softness, comfort, and essentials that help you relax, Brooke Linen has it all. And right now at brooklinen.com, they're having their days of gifting where each day they have promotions on a different surprise item. Brooke Linen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. Lifetime, I said. The only way to get access to Brooklyn's Day of Gifting, uh, Day of Days of Gifting event, and free shipping is to go to brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And if you're just hearing this and it's after the holiday season, you can still use the promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com for 10% off and free shipping anytime. Brooklinen. Everything you need to live your most comfortable life. I like that. Oh, that's a good slogan. Mm-hmm. And I hope you guys are enjoying this intro format. We're just piloting it out, mm-hmm. trying to get it all done here. So hope you're hanging in there with us. Uh, I got one more for you, and it's okay. Tooth and Nail, which is a terrific sponsor. People are happy to be able to have partnered with for so many years in so many different ways. Good relationship there. But it's Christmas time, and Tooth and & Nail and Solid State Records is running a ton of awesome sales throughout the whole holiday season. So I'm talking about like $5 on all digital albums, all of them, 30% off all CDs. And I know that in the Tooth and & Nail and label groups, there's lots of people who are proud of just their CD collections, and that ain't over, depending on who you are and how you collect your music. But 30% off CDs, 25% off all apparel, 20% off select vinyl and Tooth & Nail has really increased their vinyl collection and is continuing and we'll be putting out a bunch more vinyl over time because I guess we all like it is the reason and it's nice to be able to meet that demand and make everybody happy all the way to December 31st take advantage of it while you take advantage of it while you can and you can still pick up some records on the cheap so you here's what you got to do Make people's Christmas dreams come true. Toothandnailrecords.merchnow.com or solidstate.merchnow.com. And check it out. And Merry Christmas from everybody at Tooth and & Nail. And have a great holiday season, everybody. That's a message from them. And that concludes our intro. Uh, you know, we are really getting good at podcasting. One thing that I'm bad at, though, is uh, losing stuff on the road. When Devin and I were out on this last tour, uh, Devin lost his $100 pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
That is funny. I don't know do brands of things. I only know the prices of things. Like Devin, whatever Devin's pants are, are really nice. I could never tell you the name brand, but I know that they cost $100. Luckily, he got them back. Josh Wing, he lost them in Des Moines, and I think Josh Wing from BC Club went and picked them up for him and is going to mail them to him. How do you lose pants at that what, I don't hotel? Know. <laughs> yeah, just at the hotel. I mean... It's just when Dev and I are on tour, I mean, you're busy. You know, we went to Mall of America riding roller coasters. We're sitting in jacuzzis. We're eating out at Olive Garden. All, yeah, we're, we're just busy. You forget the little things sometimes. My God. It would not be easy for me to forget my pants, but I have a, a method I use well, to never lose pants, and it's only have one pair of pants. One pair of pants, exactly. You can't so lose them. Other people have different methods. Uh, uh, so, but Devin got his pants back, but I left my new. Uh, my they're my new earbuds that I have at the second hotel. So I left those in the hotel in Minneapolis or wherever we were. Now and earbuds so I, another story. They're I easy just, to lose. I just got my new ones and uh, I'm starting to fill those out. But I can't do the expensive ones. Now I know I think you do the AirPod stuff. I do the well, the on sale on Amazon twenty five dollar air e- Bluetooth earbuds. And so far I've gotten pretty lucky that I like them. But you you're a uh, you're a hardcore Apple person, right? You wouldn't buy the the cheap brand. You you just, well, interesting. You would say that. Interesting. You would say that. I for, first of all, let me defend the low quality stuff. But then thank we'll talk you. About the hey, high hey stuff. can I just okay. before you start? Thank you. That's what mm-hmm. I've always wanted somebody to do. That's mm-hmm. what I. That's my level. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I, now you're I talking will, my I'll world. You defend it. Yeah, I'm going to meet you there. I, I, I'm going to go the other way too in a minute. But oh God, let let me say a hundred percent that electronics that can be cheap does does not at all mean bad. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what you're looking for. But there's right. even, you know, in-ear monitors that people make, and they're like $1,000 or 1500 and they have 18 drivers and all these features and yeah. you know, the ultimate ears and all that kind of stuff. And it's like such a big deal, and it's gone to that really hi-fi market. Well, mm-hmm. in that realm, the, the components of electronics keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper with mass production and overseas and stuff like that. So there's... There are in-ear monitors that compete with that kind of thing and look similar, and they call them, they call instead of the hi-fi, they call it chi-fi, because it's Chinese, and they don't necessarily respect all the patents and all this other stuff, but they're able to, there are in-ear monitors that you can get for just unbelievably cheap on Amazon, like dozens of dollars that are awesome, and they work as mold, and you can get them molded and all that stuff. So they're like kind of breaking the law by just stealing their. Patent I, I don't and know, but maybe some, some are, like maybe that, some maybe. aren't. But it's okay. just easier. The labor's cheaper. The per, right, you sure. know keeps going down. That that uh, same that device that I told you to get for your fo- car to play the Bluetooth. Yeah. Okay. This thing it's called the KM18. If you want to look it up, I don't know who makes it. Just some whatever. It's just but it's like seventeen dollars. Has an LCD screen, a Bluetooth receiver, the FM transmitter, a line-in jack, all these components. It has all this stuff on, including a screen. And it right. costs seventeen dollars. <laughs> right. That's about it's the same as a cable to charge your phone or yeah. less. Right. And it you know so it's it's pretty amazing. So the fact that there is super high-end expensive stuff, one might say. Is stupid. Why would anybody ever do that? That's yeah, probably that's what, what I you say, say daily. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you so you got a pair of twenty five dollar earbuds, and I don't doubt that that's just if you could go back in time, like ten years, and show somebody those, they would right. blow their fucking mind. They'd lose the their mind, right? If, yes. And then you told them it was twenty five dollars, and they would think you you tra- travel to another realm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. They would but, think that. I would have thought that. What are yes. you talking about? There's no cables. It's yeah, completely yeah, you wireless. Imagine, and yeah. you can hear it, and my voice goes in it, and I can talk on the phone in it, and I just—it's just, it's just right. you wouldn't have ever been able to believe it. Today, on the other hand, though, 
you do have to compare it to my new AirPods Pro. What are you talking about? <laughs> I you got, got AirPods Pros. Ones? Yeah, I did. The Pros? You went the Pros? pros? Yeah, I got you went, them. Yeah. You, weren't, you weren't satisfied with what you had. You had the regs. Yeah, now I you got to go Pros. AirPods. What are you talking about? I got the Pros. Oh my God. It's not, it's not as if, I mean, it, 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 I don't find that frivolous <laughs> at all. I, I, I just don't oh, find no. that even slightly frivolous. I mean, you have perfectly fine working head Bluetooth headphones. It's not frivolous to buy another pair. I what, don't think uh, it what, is. I mean, what kind of animal am I to think that? Well, it might be frivolous for an, uh, your average person, but not for <laughs> me. Not for me. It's my whole world. I live yeah. in my AirPods. I live in audio. I live in music. I make podcasts. I learn everything from podcasts and audiobooks. I live in my headphones. I also make and mix music and am working very hard on trying to think about what is the future of music, and I am certain that the medium in which it's delivered is one of the most important parts of music and media and entertainment. And so AirPods are going to, I'm studying the frontier of that and I'll buy every single thing I can to understand it better and interface with it. And of course I enjoy it and like it and I get all the good drug feelings of getting a new Apple product and being in their ecosystem and all that. And so it's, to me, it's really important and I will definitely pre-order the next thing they come out with too. You know what I'm saying? That is what I will do. Because I very much care and have lots to learn. Think How's about, the new you know ear I mean? design? That's the thing that I thought was cool because I can't wear AirPods because they fall out my ears. They they have never stayed once. But now the new one has that like uh, actual rubber earbud in end that goes into your ear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the earbud, my product review. I just got them last night late. I've listened to them for like twenty minutes, so I don't know fully. <laughs> but uh, here they are. You want to see them? The folks at home really want to see them. So here they here they are. Oh wow! Look at those. But they're, they're heavy. Is, is one difference. So I'm oh, not really? sure if I like that better. They yeah. are heavier. The big issue is the noise canceling. Now, here is where it gets real crazy. Is, is you've, worn, you've worn noise yeah. canceling headphones yes. before. Okay. So, so a lot of people haven't. So for a lot of people, they just wear earbuds and then they're going to get these and they're going to, it's a pretty dramatic if, yeah. it, if it's your first experience with uh, noise canceling because instead right. of these big cans, that it kind of makes sense, and you feel you put the big ones on that people use in headphones uh, on the airplanes, bows or whatever. That that's kind of it's way different with these little buds that are just tiny, and then in your ear, and you just barely put them in, and all of a sudden you right. are in another. You are not there anymore. Like you right. feel yourself become invisible. Is yeah. what it feels like. And it scares the shit out of me. Like when I think about the future of humanity and music and media, and I just can't stop my brain from going there. It's where it is. But it's, you put them in and you are no longer in the room you're in. In a black hole. And, well, no, I don't know where you are. That's, see, that's the interesting part. But you're not, you're, you're, you've entered the lobby to other realms once before you hit play on whatever okay. media you're about to consume next. Right. But you've just left your realm when you go in that noise canceling mode with a bionic digital ears with computers in them. Right. Right. Because that's what you're yeah. doing. And so it's tuning out actively the outside world very much on purpose so that you can focus on this eight inches between these two ears and. Something that's going to be two or three inches in front of your face. And that's what you're about to do. What are we talking about again? Keep going. <laughs> you know, and so the all the media that we consume and create is completely shaped by that. So pay attention because, I mean, that's why podcasts partly work is because of earbuds, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think mean, that, you're right. Just, just that's why they work. If you if you listen to a podcast at on an AM radio coming out at the grocery store, you know, in the gas station down the street, 
that's better if you have some country music playing with lo-fi audio on the other side of the room and you have a little country music playing. Yeah. That works there. If you put a podcast on in that environment or coming out of your TV from nine feet away on the couch with other people in the room, you're not going to connect to a podcast that way. Yeah, you're right. You only can have access to this experience. I mean, people listen to their car or whatever. That's closer. But, you know, in headphones, in earbuds that get smaller and then eventually begin tuning out the outside world entirely. Yeah. So podcasting fits in there. Music and that ASMR stuff, you know, ASMR that people do. Yeah. That's a big deal, and that's very similar, and the rise of that has to be due to intimate communication. So I'm thinking music, obviously, the space to explore isn't big stadium rock, loud, big sounds. It's what intimacy and what uncomfortable things can we explore that are weird and intimate and what boundaries to play with there. And that's what podcasting is, and all the new media is going to be that, and it's going to be that plus a visual that's right now a few inches from your face. But I expect that distance to shrink. Well, that... You're right. Even with the size of the phone, it's your personalized uh, AI, basically, Mm -hmm. that's just right there. And so everything's personalized. That's why you are watching the media content you want to for you. You don't Mm -hmm. really ever share your phone screen to show some. uh, You might hand it to them to watch that one YouTube video, but most of the content, video content on there is just for you. And you're right, your headphones, like... Uh, maybe back in the day when everybody sat around the radio, you're, you know, the dad would go, shut up. And everybody had to be really quiet and listen. You know what I mean? But you were, you, you're not as yes. focused now. It is completely you. If you like what they say, keep listening. If not fast forward, skip this, do that thing, whatever it might be. And it's all for you. 100%. And yes. so it's all, it's probably even being crafted that way more and more for yeah. you oh yeah but it's it's going to be natural it's just going to evolve that way and nobody's going to know it's just people yeah. like billy ellish is that way yeah that's, that's good for airpods it's empty and spacey oh you're and totally this, right you know that's what that's why well, that music's it, popular it, well that's, that's what's really, yeah it. but that's what's really crazy to me is billy ellish now is on like some commercials i'll hear a song or whatever the experience hearing it on a commercial or in a outside of my i, I my, my headphones is way different yeah. like i experienced billy ellish's music in a, on a different plane in my headphones than I do on a TV commercial. Right. Like it, how can like, you compare that to ACDC? Uh, right. Right. Like how can you compare that? And, I mean, I guess you can say they're both music, but other, I don't know. It's not even design. It's not even. It's so far off from what the intention of the creators are doing and what they're visualizing. How you receive it, obviously, it's right. just so insane. So. I see opportunity. I see frontiers. It's very exciting. Some people may find it scary or isolating, but I think it has huge impacts for people. Here is what I'm realizing more and more is that I feel this thing happening that I find very positive, and it's something like the rise or the entry of the non-standard or less neurotypical type of people. So I think people with ADD, people with ADHD, people that like me that can't read books, and then you can have audio books. And I mean, it's going to be so, it's just so cool. Like that. what is, I mean, these things have such implications for other types of people. So there's so many people that are just now getting to come online and engage with, first of all, new media and new media that has different outcomes and is designed for new types of people who have been left out of many conversations. Right. So it's like, it's immersive, but it's also really inclusive, you know, and I, and maybe it's isolating, you know, but well, the, how, I mean, how do you think it plays out, for about. example, with the new, uh, what's it called? This, I'm showing my age here. I just saw, I think I watched a movie where it happened, but it's, you go to a dance club and only the music's only in your headphones. Yes. Why not? That'd be awesome. 
You know what I mean? Like, but it, mm-hmm. I think everybody's listening to the same music or something. But you're, mm-hmm. it's not like blasting loud speakers, right? So part of that's kind of cool because then you can remove yourself from the environment standing right there, and it's not loud yes. music where you're talking like that. You can actually just talk to the person then, right. and everybody, yeah, hey, what's going on? You know, the music isn't blasting, but mm-hmm. so that, but you are also completely in your own world. There's something about. Like when you said that, like you, you know, noise cancellation and you're in your own world, there is something about that that is hidden and you do feel like you disappear. Like I feel like when I'm walking down the street listening to rap music, I'm walking differently. I'm yep. not the same Toby as with those oh. headphones in. Now, if it was just playing through a speaker outdoors, I would feel a little bit goofy or something. That's right. but, but I'm in a different plane or reality or yes. world yes. walking through Target with headphones on than I am mm. without them. I'm right. a different person. Right. It's awesome. It's so exciting. It's it, you know the there's the but I'm feel, very solitary there. It's awesome, but I mean I'm very solitary. I'm not I'm not looking to connect. Okay, well here's your there's your opportunity though. But you can connect. So it, it's not about okay. So if you did go to those concerts with the head, everybody's wearing headphones. Let's say well that just you can say that sounds dumb. I just read it here. Like that's the you're not thinking about it right if you're in, stuck in that spot. The right. point would be the things that would happen at that event don't exist yet yeah so keep that in mind since that is possible some smart person or the combined forces of many people trying are going to come up with something some experience that nobody's had yet this incredibly artistic and powerful that only that allows for we just hadn't just haven't really made that happen yet so there's all the opportunity in the world so there you you for instance wouldn't want to see acdc that way you want the speakers blasting out of the amphitheater and that's what it's for that's how you want to experience that and that's how we got those bands there was a a way to do it and so this you would have some other type of experience it would be personal but it might be interconnected or even interactive or you might be interacting with your phone to change the music that other people are hearing who knows Like it might be something to blow your mind because you're participating in it, not yeah, yeah. isolated in headphones. Yeah, that's true. So the possibilities are limitless yeah. and new. So that's my favorite place to think because there's less chance of being that's a super funny. idiot. What, what, it's just what will the future out there. What will the future radio DJ look like? Like people like like DJs when you go to mm-hmm. a club or EDM or whatever because they're picking the music for you, and the part of it is that they did a transition into another song that you liked. You didn't see it coming. They did they pick the perfect song and all that stuff. But what if that's happening through your headphones while you're just walking around a grocery store? Well, it will. And everybody's, and I have bad news about everybody's the in about on it. That there's, there's millions of people listening to the same song as you, just like our nope. old school radio nope. DJ. You just made a huge mistake on that million people listening to the same as you. The answer to that question, which I put some thought into, is and I don't see any way out of this. God. The answer to that question is eventually you'll be listening to. The DJ, of course, is not a person, right? It's not going to be a person. No, Lord. So take your Spotify playlist. That's already uh, getting as good as people. So it, of course, will be a machine that is picking the music for you, except for the machine won't be picking the music. It'll be generating the music just for you. God. I don't want to talk about this anymore. will be exclusive to you. And you'll be the only person that ever hears it, and then it's gone. And you will find that so valuable, you won't even be able to believe it. 
Yeah. You'll go, you're hearing this perfect music that hits you just right. And Nothing it, is real. Beyond what you could have thought it would fake. be. It's made by a computer. And the second it goes through years, it disappears forever, like Snapchat. Yep. And you'll go, oh my gosh. You will really be in your own world. And, and it's already happened. It. If you're listening to this, I am just a computer program. <laughs> I am not real. I'm going to give it to you straight. I was created by CR24. <laughs> Uh, from the year 2047, and yes. uh, and you are in a capsule very happy right now. I just told you the truth. <laughs> but right. anyway, I love my AirPods because they afford me the ability to think <laughs> in these rooms. Of course you love them. It's worth every penny. Right. Okay, so we don't even have an ad break here, and it looks like we've got Ryan on mute. All right, Ryan, we're going to jump in today and get right into right into a, a topic where everybody can focus and learn. So let's just very quickly tell them who you are. Uh, it's fascinating to me because you're both, a, I guess from my view, I'm thinking of you as a researcher and a pastor. Is, it, is that correct? That's sort of how I see myself. Yeah, my name is Dr. Ryan Burge. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, Illinois, and I'm also a pastor in the American Baptist Churches. I currently serve First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon, Illinois, where I've been for 13 years now. You sound like you've given your uh, credentials before. <laughs> I've done this once or twice. Hey, Ryan, I'll tell you a little something. So I found you on the internet through Ed Stetzer, and I was just, uh, just immediately entrenched on reading all this stuff that you've written and been a part of. And I showed it to Matt and Reba, and they were... Today, they were like, uh, so, you know, we'll be talking to him. He's probably not a Christian, the way he writes. And we were like, I said, I think he's a pastor. <laughs> so you, I mean, well, that's, that's, I mean, that's pretty yeah. phenomenal. Like, it's not easy to be a Baptist pastor and to be, to come across the way you are with the written word. I mean, it's pretty, pretty phenomenal. It, it really does seem very scientific and. Uh, it's called professional. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> Well, you know, that's been my goal, though, right? Like, my goal is I don't play for any team, right? I'm not, I'm not playing for the American Baptist. I'm not playing for the Southern Baptist. I'm not, I'm not playing for atheists. Uh, my job is to describe the world the way it exists, not the way I wish it to be or the way I hope it would be or anything else. I mean, my job as a social scientist is to describe the world as best I can with the tools that I have. And sometimes that makes certain groups look good, and sometimes it makes certain groups look bad. But the best thing you can say about me is I, I'm not biased, right? I'm not yeah. playing favorites. I'm just telling you the truth. And then you, as a, as the receiver, need to do it, do with that truth whatever you're you know called to do with it. Do you think of yourself as just a rationalist then? Uh, I think in a lot of ways, yeah. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quant, you know, to quant, use the term okay, of the time. Yeah. Like I'm a, you, I'm a quant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I see the world through a data perspective. Like I have right. a lot of friends who are qualitativists, which you do like ethnography mm -hmm. and, uh, focus groups and, and interviews and things like that. I believe that for me, the best way to understand the world is through, you know, large scale surveys and doing quantitative analysis and, and teched up statistics stuff. I just love all that stuff. And I think it does, uh, it does a, a good job of describing the world to people in a broad way, you know, in Absolutely. a way that we, see the problem is everyone lives in a bubble, right? Like, I mean, no matter who you are, you live in a little bubble where you're surrounded by, I'm an American Baptist, so I'm surrounded by American Baptist. I live in a rural area, so I'm surrounded by that, right? If you live in an urban area, that's a whole different ballgame. So mm -hmm. you can't understand the world you live in right now very well. And you sure as the world can't understand the world 30 years ago, the way it actually existed, because we just don't have objective knowledge of things like that. And to me, while survey research is not perfect, and there's, I could go on for hours and hours about problems with it, it's the best tool that we have to explain the world as it is today day and as it was 30 years ago. Yeah. So I think that it's an extreme rarity that you'd have somebody who is either a rationalist or a quant or anything like that, that, that usually is a pastor. Those are usually not, uh, those are more rare, I would say. Those are, yeah, but I, wouldn't yeah. you say? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, academia is not super duper friendly to Christians. Let's just right. be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people who do religion and politics at the academic level are are either ex-Christians or never were Christians or never were really people of faith. And so it's always that line. And I think, uh, you know, I always in my mind try to put myself in the spot of, you know, I try to answer questions as a pastor, but I also try to answer questions as an academic. And I sort of have to ask people sometimes like, okay, which answer do you want? Do you want like the Jesus answer or do you want like the, the, like the academic answer? Like, what are you shooting for here? And I can, I can, you know, turn those lenses really quick in my head because I can think about the world both ways. That's right. That, that's, that's, there's a lot of people that way, but most people are not that way, and nor do they even understand. A lot of people interpret that as, well, I guess you're not even real or don't believe anything or it's something like that. It's just, but you know, I can just put on a different hat and I can take what's useful and use it for this. And this is, if I says, anyway, um, that's pleasant for me to hear because it's going to be a good conversation. I want to get right after something. I'm looking at your article about authority and authoritarian stuff and, and religion. Oh my gosh, what a topic. I love it so much. So we're going to do a little project for everybody here. We're going to talk about the psycho- psychologist view and the sociologist view of how and how that interacts with religion for 15 or 20 minutes here. Um, I don't know what my opinion is yet, so we're going to introduce this summary of this, and then we're going to talk through it, and I'll try to form an opinion or, or, or see what I think, and so will the listeners. So, And you've already done the work on here, so this is terrific. We can discover together. Um, Toby, could you just read that paragraph? Do you have it on the uh, the authority, authoritarianism, and religion article. Yeah, I'll just per- read the the summary here, just a little bit. The, but just the said, first paragraph, of right? The summary. Uh, it says, since around the 1950s, hundreds of articles have been published in social science that are concerned with the concept of authority and authoritarianism and how both relate to religion. Despite this tremendous volume of research, two camps have emerged that have failed to incorporate the ideas of the other. Psychologists contend that the Deference uh, to authority is primarily a personality-driven variable and is often shaped by subconscious and undetected psychological processes that are unchangeable once established. In contrast, sociologists uh, contend that authoritarianism is largely a a product of interaction in a social environment. This perspective suggests that religion is one of the many factors that help to shape the authoritarian outlook of individuals along with the political and economic variables. Did okay. I write that? I think I wrote that. Yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> oh, that was so, okay. I, guess. I should have had you read it because I, I, was, I, was, I got a little nervous. I, so I, got, I got about 10 words in. I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, like people like, well, like that graph you made two weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, no. Like I've made like 38 graphs since then. So I don't remember anything I've done. Okay, so the two can so okay, what I'm hearing in this that's fascinating is there's a has been a lot of so, social science done. And two camps have emerged, and they're at odds. Now, I'm not clear on how they're at odds and not both just right is the first thing. But let's see if, if everybody can get a grip on what the two camps are. They're psychologists who study individuals, and they say that how given we're, – we're discussing here what how given you are to authority, how readily you accept it. How would you say – what yeah. is the thing we're how, talking about? How willing you are to defer to authority in your life. Okay, deference to authority in, mm-hmm. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Willing to submit to it. Mm-hmm. It being whatever it is, pastor, teacher, school, parent, whatever, right? Exactly, yep. Okay. Uh, police, you name it. Uh, woke patrol on Twitter, you name it. Submit to the authority. Okay, so we have personality-driven, subconscious, and psychological processes is what determined to to the psychologist how much we defer to authority. That's the claim. Yeah, I mean, 
that's the that's the oldest stuff in social science, right? That mm-hmm. that actually kind of has its root in people trying to figure out how in the world Hitler became Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like how how do like rational, smart, intelligent, educated, well-rounded people sort of go, yeah, let's kill six million Jews. That's great. Like, how can we sort of give up our own autonomy and our own thoughtfulness and sort of give it over to somebody else? And, you know, that's back when, like, Freud was really important and, like, psychology was, like, really, like, coming into its own. People were like, this is this explains everything in the world, how you think about the world. And so that whole literature is, like, kind of interested in the way that your brain thinks about things, the way it perceives things. The idea is that certain people are just predisposed to being followers, Right. Right. Like they want someone to tell them what to do. They want someone to tell them how to live. They want someone to tell them who they can marry or, you know, how much they can drink or, you know, like it's all like the youth group stuff. But that's not crazy, though. That's not that's that's very reasonable. And I'm glad Chipotle has a small menu. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, you can be crushed I, I don't, too much choice, right? Yeah, like, I mean, I need to be you, told yeah. what to do and stuff I don't give a shit about. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> you know, so but, I, but, I like I, mean, I want to defer to people that know things in the areas where I want. I don't I don't have a preference. What does everybody else do? OK, good. Tell me. And that's like the Loki scene in the Avengers where he says they were meant to be ruled. <laughs> right. That's on this extreme end. I'm not saying that's you being a sheep or a bad person, but that's kind of the extreme end is what Loki's getting at. And the not yeah. extreme end is I'm happy to defer to what everybody else wants to eat or whatever the menu has. I think that's we've like sort of I think that's like one of the terrible things of like Twitter woke culture stuff. It's like you can't have you can't be a hero. like You can't have a hero or be a fan of anybody because like someone will come along in your mentions and tell you why they're a terrible person and everything because every, every leader has problems. Right. No matter what right. their thought leader, religious, political, whatever it is. But I think it's it's a, it's a scale. Right. Between mm-hmm. like you just you are told what to do and you do it like it's a almost it's an abusive relationship where you have zero autonomy. Uh-huh. And on the other side of the scale is you won't listen to what anybody, you know, like I'm going to live my life. You can't tell me what to do. Like I will do whatever I want to do. I think what we're worried about psychologically is what gets people more to one end of the scale versus the other end of the scale. And is your brain wired in such a way mm-hmm. that it just naturally wants to be told what to do? Because in some people that seems to be the truth. And other people that they they are repelled by that and repulsed by that, they want to be their own person. So it's really about you know what it's not. We're none of us are on one end or the other end of the spectrum. It's where in the middle of the spectrum we find ourselves. And on what issue though, too, right? Like you can want total authority in some realm and total autonomy in another, right? But it seems like a lot of those things do go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I know we're going to talk about Trump eventually. We just have to, right? <laughs> I mean, I think it it, it comes it comes as no surprise that the people who like Trump also like you know very charismatic you know conservative theological leadership right. too, well, right? Yeah. Like people who like Rob Bell are not like I love Trump and Rob Bell. Like no one says that, right? right? Because like that's not how we work in our brain. True. If you like John Piper, you're going to like. Donald Trump, because they basically tell you how it's going to be, and then you just do what you're told in a lot. Now, listen, I know there's going to be some Trump people who listen to me go, I'm not a sheep, and you're not. But at the same point, Donald Trump has a lot more blind allegiance than most other political figures that have existed yes. in the last 50 years. Yes. I think that's just objectively true, uh, much more than any you know any recent figure for sure. And you listen, a lot of pastors, uh, that guy at Harvest Chapel in Chicago was basically running a dictatorship up there, stealing money, you know, getting all this personal money, and no one stood in his way. And he's not the only guy. That happens. Uh, Mark Driscoll in Mars Hill in yeah. Seattle, same thing happened. Um, these stories happen in churches where authority is sort of put up 
you know, up high without any sort of accountability. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is those are traditions that are non-denominational more often than not, which means they have no structure above them. Right. Like, right. so right. like Mark's yeah. it, like there was no, I know he had like elders or whatever, right, but right. there was no like national body on top of him telling him what to do. What's funny is people like authority that's very close to them, but they're becoming more and more distrustful of authority that's further and further away from them. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, that's why you see like the mainline denominations in America, like the United Methodists and the Presbyterians, they're declining because the people don't like the idea of a, a someone in a, in a headquarters 500 miles away is going to tell me who my pastor is or right. if, if we're going to build a new church building. But they're totally cool with the guy up there every Sunday telling them exactly what to do and exactly what to think, because I know that guy. Yes. Wow. Yes. And that will and I want to get back to that. Yeah, because that will even untang- plays into uh the article that got me into your writings was about biblical literalism and mm-hmm. you'll trust that book in your hand, maybe not the one that you know this farther away or something. That Exactly. Exactly. Let's get like, through this and get right to that because that's really where we're headed. I just want to establish the baseline of the the, the ideas here and the sociological sure. and psychological sure. and make sure I'm calibrated correctly. Sure. So this I- that's the psychologist. And so uh, I'm on here saying, yeah, of course, I'm not anti-authority in the pure sense. There's a lot here. I come across anti-authority a lot. I'm just on another end of the spectrum. But the uh, is obviously there's you can be under authority, and that's good and great and to whatever degree and whatever's healthy and stuff like that. The extremes get weird. Okay, the that's a largely a product of the, of the person's ner- nature and nurture, though. Both still. Well, so so psychology would be largely like the way you were born. So your your nature almost makes all nature you, here so far. Yeah, and there's actually a whole field in political science called genopolitics now that's trying to figure out like how much our genetics impact our politics. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some. We're not there yet. Like we haven't arrived at like a grand theory of it. But there's definitely things like threat perception. Like we know like Republicans have higher levels of threat perception, mm-hmm. which is if you show them a bunch of images. Liberals are like, yeah, what's the big deal? And Republicans are like, whoa, like my kids are going to die. I'm going to get Ebola. Like, <laughs> right. You know, like all these yeah. things are going to happen. Like they're more worried about the world. Like they're more right. likely to lock their doors. They're more, you know what I mean? They're yeah. more like to have a gun. Now it goes back to like personal protection, right? Like they're, they just see the world in different ways. And that's what the psychology piece says. It's not like how we were taught. It's what our brain says. It says like danger, 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 survive. Like that's, we have to keep surviving. That's like moral intuitions like Jonathan Haidt, right? Exactly. That's, That's that exactly. View. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hates okay. all really in that line. Yep. For sure. Okay. So the sociological view then is sociologists are looking at, you know, groups of people, not individuals, is where they're focused, and that they contend that authoritarianism is largely a product of interaction in a social environment. Suggests yep. that religion is one of many factors. So reli- So not you're born that way. Your religion made you forced you, caused you, convinced you to defer to authority more than you would have? Is that, yeah, no, that one? I would say I would say nudge would be the right word, right? Okay. Like I don't believe that like nothing in this world is completely predictive of anything, right? Like mm-hmm. there are like factors that sort of like load the gun and then something else pulls the trigger. And I think like, for instance, if you were raised in a household where your your father, it's usually your father, it was like a very strong authoritarian, right? Who would like, you gotta wear, you know, wear these clothes and get up at this time and make your bed. And if you don't, you get you get whooped. Like that's going to change your view of authority. And some people rebel against that, right? Like they go like, no, I'm with you. Yeah. 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 Or they become exactly what that their father was when they become a father or mother because they want to replicate that sort of rigid environment that they grew up in. And, you know, not to go too far afield, but I love the Duggars, you know, 19 kids and counting and all that stuff. And I, and I love watching them from like a sociological perspective because now a lot of them are growing up and getting married and moving on. And some of them are raising their families exactly the way they were raised 
And then some of them are sort of like edging away from that and becoming more open and less authoritarian than what they were raised with. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, which sort of shows you like you can't nothing's predictive here. Right. You can raise 100 kids in the exact same environment and half of them can come out this way and half of them can come out that way. That supports and, the other view. Yeah, well, the psychological thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. For sure. Like, you know, some kids are just born a certain way and they're just not they're going to be rebels from the day they were born. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's just how I think it's a mix, though, right? Like everything in the world, it's not just one thing or another thing. We don't have a grand theory of this. It's just I think psychology sets you up in cert- certain ways that sociology can be very effective in your life, right? Like relationships that you have. And the church obviously plays a huge part in that. If it's we don't question the pastor, right? Like or I mean, to take an extreme example, like Jonestown, right? Let's all pack up and go to Guyana, guys. And no one stood up and goes, yeah, that's a bad idea, man. Like we should probably not leave the country covertly, right? right. Like on a smaller level, that kind of stuff happens all the time in churches, whether it's let's start a new service or let's build a gym or, you know, like you can pick all these like very like innocuous things, but at some level, if someone, and, and this is what makes religion hard, right? There's this whole phrase that you can use in church. And I've heard it many times. God told me we should fill yeah. in the blank. Right. Right. Yeah. And if you, if you're an authoritarian, you hear that term and you've been socialized to believe if God told my pastor something, that's, that's the word of God. That's the will of God for our church and me. So therefore I have to sort of obey that and, and fall in line and, and, and listen, that turns out okay. A lot of times, but man, when it turns out bad, it turns out really bad. Yeah, I know. Um, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Me too. Like I've been in so many council meetings and stuff where someone's like, I think it's God's will for us to build a gym. And I'm like, what? It's God's will for this meeting to be over with now. Yeah, and then you know, like, and, and then so the the real double whammy worst part would be if you already predisposed maybe internally inside your brain to accept authority, and then you grow up in the South or something where religion is authoritative, and then what does that cause you to be? That's where the the danger zone is, especially right. That's where is that how something like a Hitler happens? Like you're already maybe predisposed to. Uh, uh, you, you have a certain things like I, I mean, whenever I think about Germans just having you know our band toured there a little bit, just super intelligent, strong work ethic, all of this stuff. So it almost is like maybe they were already predis- predisposed to a strong leader saying this is what will happen, and they were just convinced of the reasons. Like the reasons almost were secondhand to they were already ready to be set up for that, right, or, or something. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another there's another theory in communication called the spiral of silence which basically argues that if you're in a group of people, you start figuring out really quick look what the dominant theology is, political ideology is. And once you figure that out, if you realize you're on the outs of that, you're just going to shut up mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's, it's human nature not to want to like rock the boat and, and, and be an outcast. And so what you do is you remain silent and silence is inferred to be complicity, right? right. It's, you know, and, right. and that's where the problem comes in yeah. is like, if it's 60, 40, it's 60-40, but no one perceives it as 60-40. They perceive it as like 100% we're all in favor of this thing. And really, it's just people are scared to stand up and say, I don't, I don't agree with that. You know? yeah. Right. And so there, enter the loudmouth contrarian who's not afraid to stir up some bullshit. Right? Right. That, That's the, the function hey, of those people. Right. There's something called the devil's advocate for a reason, man. When Vatican does uh, canonization of saints, they actually appoint a bishop who's the devil's advocate. And his job is literally to be like, yeah, that's probably wrong. And that wasn't really a miracle. And you're probably, you, you had this guy all wrong just yes. to put a, a doubt in people's minds about canonization. You know, it, we should have a devil's advocate in every meeting of every church in America. And you will end up hating the devil's advocate because they make things hard. But man, they, they stop groupthink. Right? If you want to like, be right, right though, yeah. if you want to be right, you want to know what how you might be wrong. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, the thing Not, is, we don't want to know wanna, if I'm wrong. Follow me. Well, well people don't want to be challenged, though, right? Oh, like, okay. Co- right. Cognitive. You don't want to be challenged. A, you don't want to be right. Well, the, think about this. How many people? How many like hardcore Trumpers watch MSNBC on the regular? Right, or how many? All Bernie the ones bros, that don't no. care about being right. <laughs> There's not all the many ones that just. Saying, I mean, the no. all ones that just care about feeling right, not being yeah. right. That's exactly. The ones. That's, that's exactly. But we don't like cognitive dissonance, right? Like right. it creates this like scratch in our head, and we're like, right. I don't want that. Like get that, get that away from me. Let's go back to the warm embrace of Sean Hannity, right? So he can tell me why I'm right. I mean, that's and listen, it has to the left too. Though. It, well, it's it's human nature, though, right? Like we are lazy human beings. Like we know this. We take all these like co- they're called heuristics, cognitive shortcuts mm-hmm. in our head, or we don't want to make a decision about something, so we just like say, okay, how does uh, how does uh, John Piper feel about that theology issue? Okay, I agree that'll with do. him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that'll do. Right. Like cause I don't want to like dig through the text and stuff. I'm right? not like, smart like, enough. It's, it's, that's yeah. that's that's an, that's an unbelievable ability of humans is to calibrate to others and tr- and use utilize trust to gain heuristic knowledge to navigate the world what an amazing way to do yeah but it's amazing but but it's also scary though well that's what i'm saying that's your job is to not is to you have to steward that you have to take very seriously your calibration who you calibrate to and be looking for counter evidence at the whole time but you it's to scary to look for counter. Re- you got to reevaluate, though. Right. Right. Like in terms it's of a like people. Sh- exactly. You got to constantly be reevaluating who you're anchoring to. Right. Like right. who are your who are constantly. your influencers yeah. in your life? You got to yeah. keep thinking like, OK, Rob, I mean, listen, I saw Rob Bell in 2004. He was like evangelical darling. And then five years later, he was like out of evangelicalism. Right. Mm-hmm. Like right. you got to constantly be thinking about like what people are doing and where they're going. And even, you know, like John Piper right. or, or, or uh, Rick Warren or even Ed Stetzer, like you constantly have to be thinking about these guys and where they stand in the spectrum and whether they still represent you and your views or whether they've kind of gone too far afield for you. So that's I mean, that's right. hard. Yeah. And if you do take challenging views, there's two bad outcomes. One is I'm totally wrong. And the other one is there's no answer or I can't understand the answer. <laughs> you know, like there's plenty of big picture things that I think I have a point of view, but I don't really know. And if I look into it, I just find that I really don't know and no closer and have to sit with uncertainty even more, which is uncomfortable. Or I just find out I'm wrong. I'm not very well, interested in finding out either of those. Most well, of the so time. I, I grew up in the nineties, right? And youth group is like, all truth is God's truth. Relativity is bad. Relativism <laughs> is bad. Yeah. Right. You know, like that whole mentality was like beat into my brain as a teenager. Like you've got to know what you believe about everything. Otherwise you're going to, you know, you're going to fall into Satan's trap. And now it's like, as a social scientist in my mid thirties, I'm like, yeah, I'm certain of nothing. Like mm-hmm, right. you, you know, you can like, you need to show me the evidence and then I'll re reevaluate what I believe. Like you've got to constantly be thinking about all the time what you're thinking about, right? Like how you believe about the world, your biases, your implicit biases, because you don't see them, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see how you see the world until someone shows it to you. And I think people are just, I mean, honestly, I am too, too lazy to reevaluate and be self-reflective all the time. Yeah, but don't be lazy in the areas that matter the most is all. Sure. That I mean, sure. I can't figure out everything. I just farm it all out to who I trust. <laughs> but the things that matter and I care about, I had to, to do the hard work. But, but I, I know, but the problem with that is, like you were saying, like I, I grew up the same way. Unbelievably uh, conservative, small-time church. I've said this before. I grew up in a uh, denomination called Church of God of Prophecy. Like they were, I mean, we were... You know, women didn't wear jewelry. You weren't allowed to see movies. All, all kinds of a lot. Interestingly enough, a lot of rules for women, for sure, more than it seemed in the men. But there is something about my grandfather was a pastor. How do I? He's 
I trust him to reveal truth to me. He's a good man. He has, he has some real problems that I couldn't see when I was seven and 10 or 12 years old, but he, he was trying to reveal truth. Now that truth, as I get older, I see is skewed and set up by his environment and the way he thought. And so how do you, it's not just that I can go, yeah, he was wrong and I'm moving on. It's my Paul that told me those things. Like it's the guy that we hung out and laughed together and all that stuff. So that's where it gets, I think it gets really hazy is when the people you trust in your community, in, like growing up in Greer, South Carolina, those people thought a lot of things that I do not believe to be true anymore, but it takes a long time for me to get all those out of my head because, uh, because I believed them because they meant good for me. Right. But what that, could have that, happened differently, though? How was if I it supposed wasn't to? All bad, well, I'm then saying what could have been better. For example, when I was 15, and there's uh, FCA groups and clubs and Christian, you know, Bible studies in the morning and stuff like that. How could I have taken a stand against everybody in the room? And for what reason would I have done it? I, I, my, I had those thoughts of, wait a minute, I don't know if I totally agree with all this, but I, but, but I did exactly like Ryan said. I stayed quiet. I just stayed quiet and let myself, you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't push back because it was just, it's too hard. And those people are my friends. I want to go hang out with them later, not be, you know, ostracized from the community. Then I'm on the outside and who, and the people on the outside don't like me because I'm too Christian. So, <laughs> so Toby where, purely where represents go? the sociological view then, right? And yeah. with what he's saying right Maybe. there. Yeah. For, but now the psychological view is sort of kicking in, right? So he's sort of like rebelling against that now and like taking like that right. bigger introspect, like his, yeah. his brain's kicking I back see. in, right? And he's like, whoa, like I was probably, you know, hoodwinked a little bit by what I grew up with. And, but don't we all do that as adults? So like look back on our childhood sure. and go, oh, go yes. man, that was, that was messed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I call it like a, this is water moment. Like there's two fish swimming along and you know, they're talking about stuff. And then an old fish comes by and goes, Hey guys, how's the water? And then he swims off and the two fish look at each other and go, what in the world's water? Yeah, right. Like, like you don't know what water is until someone points it out to you. You don't know the way you were, you grew up was weird until someone says, "Well, that was weird," you know, until you see something else. And I think that's when your psychology sort of kicks back in and goes, "Wow, like was that really weird or was that not weird? Does that fit my view of the world? Does that like fit my view of authority and religion and and all those things?" And I think we are, our, I think our psychology sort of is like the baseline, and our our sociology sort of pushes us around a little bit. I mean, hopefully, eventually, our psychology, I guess, would win out in terms of you know what we know. But I think some people get so far down the rabbit hole, they can never really get back. Yeah, so Toby, you are not at all an authoritarian person by nature. You're a free person, right? Maybe. I'd like to think so, but I don't know if that, um, you know. But you were born, you happen to be born into an extremely authoritarian social social environment. Yes, extremely. And that explains a lot, to be honest. Like, you're a free person. That's who you are. But and a lot of that it, is but in you were born into to something. Other. I probably wouldn't be as free if it wasn't in response to some of that. Like, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. And now as you get farther away, your first response usually is anger. And now I go, wait a minute, I don't want to be mad at those people. They were just trying. Like I said, it's taken now I'm 43 years old. It's taken all this time for me to go, wait a minute. They were trying to do the right thing to protect me, not to hurt me or hurt other people. But that's what sometimes it was accomplished. I didn't know that. They didn't know that, but that's the way it is. So now how do you change that? Like with my own kids or what does that look like? How do I reveal God in a clear way to them and allow them their humanity, their brain space to, to work through some things and figure those things out? That's what I, that's what I'm wondering. This conversation we're having, how does the how does this authority playing out in church in America? Like how is, is it getting less? Is it getting more? Well, let me let me sort of give you a little bit of my background. I yeah. was I was born and raised Southern Baptist. Okay, so like super religious, right? Mid nineties, like wore the Pax two seventeen t shirts, <laughs> like went, you know, like plank eye and third day and all. We that. played a show with Pax one time. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were like, yeah, no we two. love. 
oh man, that was like the golden age of like American evangelicalism, right. man. Like in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> and then I went to a, I went to college in a Free Methodist school, uh, which is funny. They were super like theological, like theological. They're super liberal, but like behavior wise, we couldn't do anything bad. Couldn't swear, couldn't drink, couldn't smoke. Had to go to chapel. The whole deal. So like behavior wise, we were like fundamentalists. But then like belief wise, they like tore us completely down. We're like, do you really believe in the reincarnation? Do you really believe in the virgin birth? All this stuff. Right? Really. So I graduated and and went to an American Baptist church and became a pastor there, which is sort of a mainline moderate denomination. And then to make things even more difficult, I married a Catholic. Uh, and we have two kids that are both baptized Catholic. And my my youngest, my oldest son's going through communion now, first communion. And so what we said to him is, dude, we don't care what you believe. We want you to believe in something and we want you to be part of something. Yeah. Right. So whether you want to be a Catholic or you want to be a Baptist or you want to be, you know, I want you to be part of a faith tradition. And that and that's my social science brain, because it says like, listen, there's all these good things that come out of being part of community yes. that you that you need in your life, whether you believe all of it or you believe none of it. That is irrelevant to me and your mother. What's relevant to me is that will give you a sense of you know purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of community, a social ties. These people will care about you when you go away to college and send you care packages. You know, like they yeah. will, they will, you will invest in their lives and they'll invest in your life, and your life will be better because of that. And even if you don't believe any of that stuff, honestly, they don't care. That's irrelevant to them. They just want you. They want to have a family and a community. And that, to me, that's like how I think about faith now, right? Like. I'm, I got this like big book idea, which is basically to argue like we all should come back to church, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. Like, <laughs> you know, like the religion like part is completely irrelevant, right? right? I can give you reams of social science that say that church attendance does all kinds of good things for you personally and for the community that you live in and even the country that we live in all at the same time. And the law and, and the, the rise of the nuns, I'm not going to get to the theological part of that. Sociologically, I think it's driven this problem we have with polarization. The nuns, people leaving church has made that worse. And I think my kids need to be back in church because it creates community. So first of all, people are leaving church. That's happening. And you call them the religious nuns. That's what you, N-O-N-E-S, right? Is that what you mean? So the rise of the nuns is a big deal. But from where I'm sitting, I've been trying to scream at people that obviously people are leaving church and everybody's Mm -hmm. been saying, no, they're not. And they'll find some article that says church is on the rise or it's here. And I'm like, that can't, that's not what I'm seeing. But you tell me. No, there's anyone who says that's like in the bag for evangelicals, right? Like they're playing for a team. Um, the, the data, you cannot read the data in any other way that the nuns are rising rapidly and they are uh, taking, okay, so in 1976, the largest tradition in America was mainline Protestant Christianity, or 30.9% of Americans. It's literally the only tradition in the history of the GSS where it was over 30%, mainline Protestants in 1976. Today, they're 10%, okay? So 31% to 10% in 46 years, or 40 years. Uh, evangelicals are about the same size and the nuns have gone from 5% to 23% in the last 46 years. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, you, and then if you look at other data, like they might be as high as 30%, depending on how you want to count them, like at least a quarter to 30% of Americans are religiously unaffiliated. And that is up dramatically from where it was 40 years ago. There's just no way you can read the data and see it any other way than that. Well, there's one way you could read it that would say these things have swings and it's going to swing back the other way. But I don't think anybody thinks that, do they? No, <laughs> no. This might be I mean, the beginning right. of the rise yeah. of the nuns or it might be closer to – it might slow down, but we don't even know that. Do, do we think it, may, it will speed mm. up from here? Is, it, mm. is there a trend? Mm. 
it's hard to know. I mean, because like this stuff doesn't work linearly, right? Like right. you could be a, there could be a nine eleven deal. There could be a great awakening, like what evangelicals pray for, like a grand revival, and everybody could come back. I, like that's the part I can't predict, right? I will say that I did a model projecting religion in twenty thirty, and the nuns would be almost thirty percent of America by 2030 and they would clearly be the largest religious group in America in the next nine or 10 years. Mm. So there's the, the bigger issue you're talking about is called secularization, which is this theory that like uh, Max Weber talked about like in 1800s, like as societies become more educated and more have higher incomes, they basically cast off religion. Mm -hmm. Um, He used the term demagification, (laughs) which I think is really sort of, you know, like we, the enlightenment taught us like science can tell us when it's going to rain. It's not God, you know, like bringing rain for us. And so the more we learn, the less magic we had. Right. And so the, the theory here is that Europe is sort of the leading edge of secularization and we're sort of the trailing edge of secularization. Mm -hmm. And what happened there is going to happen here, just maybe 50 or 60 years slower. Are the nuns uh, spiritual? Are they atheists? What's the makeup of these nuns? So there's very few people who are like, I'm a nun and I don't believe in anything. Like, I think that that's the key is belief in America is incredibly strong. Over 90% of Americans still believe in something, right? Mm -hmm. Like they still believe that there is a God and we could potentially know that this God exists, right? Which is amazing when you think about the fact that 25% of Americans, let's say, have no religious affiliation, but only 10% of Americans don't believe in anything. That means there's a huge block of Americans who are not completely turned off by matters of faith it seems like they're more they're that they like the psychology of it they don't like the sociology of it right, right. Like they don't like to they don't want to go out there and be part of a community and like go to church once a week and, and do all that stuff they want to sit home and watch netflix which you know i don't blame them for well i think it's like what you said i mean just a few minutes ago was is impactful to me because I don't my my family and I don't I was a worship I was a worship leader actually at Mars Hill where Mark Driscoll was and then uh, a worship leader at another mega church down south uh, and I do not attend church right now because I've been frustrated by the system of it but I do miss the I think you're right I really do think that the the group and attending and investing in each other is really important. I, I do think the preached word is important. All, all the the things, taking the sacraments, everything about it, giving, all of those things I think are super important. But the problem with the church system is it does feel like group think. If you're not, it, it doesn't seem to often respect your intelligence as valid too. And then, and, and I know there has to be a hierarchy of authority within any organization, but it feels like believe this way or don't come here in a way. That might not even be true, but that, that idea, I think, is floated within church. Like the idea of going to a Baptist church, you know what to expect. But I'm talking mm-hmm. to you right now, and I'm like, man, I'm having a great conversation. Some things we'd agree on, some things we wouldn't, I'm sure. But I mean, that that openness there is what I, I think the church has missed. I, 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 that's kind of even what I was getting back to. It almost feels like, in some ways, they're drawing more deeply into the authority, because that way they get to keep mm-hmm. their group strong or something. I'm not sure if that's totally true, but it feels that way with church. Like we're going to double down on biblical literalism when I thought, mm-hmm. oh, we would move away from it. Like we might double down on some of these things. Now, lots of people are doubling down on no women as, as you know, right. leadership yeah. and clergy that, you know, definitely you're seeing lots of doubling down on homosexuality, uh, wherever you fall on that. Some people are going, we're going to publicly state very strongly what we believe. Uh, and so it, I was, I was kind of reading through some of your articles that way. I was like, Oh, it it almost feels like authority is a way to get even more control of your organization or your religion. Maybe. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I grew up evangelical, right? So I, like, I always heard like this stuff, like relative truth is bad, you know, like any questioning, any doubt is bad. You have to believe all these things. And like Mark Driscoll, not to like pick on him, dude scares me to death because he's so sure of himself. Right. Like, like, I'm just like, how can you be that sure of anything in your entire life, man? Like, I don't believe anything as much as as you believe the thing you're yelling about right now. And I think (laughs) evangelicalism like built its whole, you know, foundation on this idea of this is what we believe. You have to believe this all the way which did great for keeping the very you know like hardcore theologically conservative people in but then it drove a lot of people like me out who were like dude i can never believe what as well as you believe or as much as you believe i am always going to doubt so much i need someone to stand up in the pulpit every sunday and go in my opinion or here's what i think this passage means right or i might be wrong or can someone correct me Right. Like that kind of language was totally missing in evangelicalism. And I think, see, if you if I picture it in my mind, it's like making like a reduction, like in a kitchen where you put like a bunch of uh, ingredients together and you cook them down for a long time. And then some things evaporate off and the flavor is concentrated mm-hmm. even tighter. Like that's what's happened to American Christianity is like all the moderate people like me, the doubters, the people who, you know, really struggle with their faith. I sort of got evaporated off. And luckily I landed in the mainline pot, but I could have easily landed in the nun pot. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, like a lot of my friends did. So who who do you have left? And that's the the piece I wrote with Mark or, or with um with Ed is the people who are left. The people who attend church weekly are more biblical literalists today than they were thirty years ago. Which means mm-hmm. the people that are left are like your hardcore theological conservatives because all the moderates went away, and now that spiral of silence gets mm-hmm. deafening because there's no one to stand up and go, is that really the right interpretation of that passage? Are you sure that's what that means? Because they all go, yes, what the pastor says is true and what the Bible says is true, and I believe that. Well, that's what right. happens in the churches like Toby's where his Church of God of Prophecy split from the other one for not being conservative enough about yeah. something uh-huh. like dresses or something. So it, it distills down and gets more hyper and, and is more cult-like. Is, is, that's, that's just what yeah, it is. Yes, and, they, they attack their own. And there's another yeah. way that it works out too – I've usually I've used this analogy a lot. It kind of fits here. It's like if it keeps on going, it either becomes something like a dangerous, like a cult, or it becomes something like a separatist movement, like the Amish. They're harmless, and I ain't worried about them. But they're more doctrinal, maybe than they were pre. You know, they get smaller and smaller, and more and more pure to whatever yeah. it is that they are. And Amish people seem fine, but they're not an important cultural influence anymore, but they're separately down some road. So maybe evangelical can go that way. But the thing that with the rise of the evangelical thing where it got crazy is where I think the real important things about the church, both theologically and community-based and mental health-based and organic goodness, eventually got was so, is so, such a valuable commodity that the predatory element comes in. And so a, a Mark Driscoll or somebody like that can, with confidence, like a con man, can, you know, take people that are prone to magical thinking and take them, you can take that vehicle and that real value and that thing that matters so much and you can commandeer it for your purposes. And maybe you don't even know, but you get closer and closer to where everybody there is in cult language, true believers. And now you yeah. really can't speak up. So there's this thing we talk about with religions is how tall the wall is going to be in terms of like, how, how hard are you going to make it for new people to get in? Mm-hmm. B- because the harder you make it for new people to get in, the harder it's going to be to bring new people in. But once they're in, it's almost impossible for them to leave. Right. 
right? Because the walls are so tall. So every church is trying to figure out like how tall do the walls need to be for us to maintain what we have, but still bring new people in. And I would argue like those Pentecostal churches make the tallest walls you can have, right? Like you got to wear a certain thing and you got to look a certain way and you got to, you know, but then you've got like non-denominational churches. I think that make the walls like ground level where it's like, y'all come, we've got no attendance. We've got no membership. We've got no, you know, like there's, there's no like onboarding classes. Like what drives that? Well, I think it's that's growth. money driven or something. Well, yeah, growth, it, well, it's driven, prestige yeah. driven. It's money yeah. driven. It's they're attractional, right? That's the word they use all the yeah. time. We're, we want to bring more people. They, they, their entire brand is based off growth. Like that uh-huh. is their identity is if we're growing, we're doing God's will. And if we're not growing, we're obviously not doing God's that's will. It. That's the explosion of the mega church is driven by the growth part. So, so some yeah. stats here. Okay. In, in 1972, 3% of all Protestants were non-denominational. Now it's 23%. Okay, so like in the future, like non-denominational Protestant Christianity is going to like eat Protestant Christianity. Like the Southern Baptists are on the decline. The United Methodists are on the decline. Non-denominational Protestants have grown 400 percent since 1980. Like they're literally the fastest growing Protestant group in America. Like they are exploding. And here's the problem that we have with them. We have been using sociologically the same tools that we study like Baptists and Methodists to study them. When these non-denominational churches are using completely different methods to attract people and to keep them there that are not generating what we call the secondary effects of church, which like we always know the more you go to church, the more you participate in the political process. That's like been proven out hundreds <laughs> really? of times. Yeah. But in non-denominational churches, that does not happen. Which is terrifying because what it means is all the good stuff that social science knows about church, they're eroding all that good stuff because they're making the walls so short that they're not getting those membership benefits, those social capital benefits that we would want to see a church to create. So what we're basically getting is like church light with Yikes. the rise of non-denominational churches, which to me, like I'm writing myself, my co-author, we got a grant to do a study and we're going to write a book where we basically argue like non-denominational Christianity is not the good future for the future of American Protestant Christianity because it's losing all these things that made it a secondary benefit to society. So is that meaning like it, that, that in that lens, would I be right to say that then it's just consumerism and it's empty to those people then? Yeah. And they're not yeah. actually getting the benefits of connection, community, growth. Mm-hmm. And then you have – so, okay, how about this? Tell me, does this make a connection or not one? If let's just say 25% of people are in low wall – not getting the benefits of church, and then 25% of them are nuns. Now you have 50% of people that are not getting the community psychosocial benefits that they need to function. And also we have a massive opiate and suicide and mental health crisis at the same yeah. time. Is that so, not connected? Uh, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I, there was a book uh, by Robert Putnam written in 2000 called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community is what it's called. And he basically argues that if you look at trends over the last 100, this is to 2000, or 19, or 2000 from 1900 to 2000, people aren't bowling in bowling leagues anymore. People are not joining the Elks Club and the Moose and the Lions mm-hmm. and all the social organizations. Right. That's basically declined. And church has sort of declined, but not as much as those other things have. But what he says is we're going to lose social capital, which is like those bond, those invisible bonds Trust. that tie you to your neighbor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like I care about the schools, even though I don't have kids in the schools, or I care about the park, even though I never go to the park, right? Like it's the thing that makes us feel part of something. And you know what he blamed it on? Cable television. 
because mm-hmm. it was it was 2000 right so this is like right at the advent of like technology and i would argue it should be like tweeting alone and facebooking alone and mm-hmm. instagramming alone. like we've become Isolation. hyper yeah, yeah atomized social atomization is what it's called even right? like, in the consumer church you just you go sit yes. there you don't want to talk to anybody the worst part is when they make you talk to somebody you don't want to talk to for 10 seconds and that's exactly. awful and then you sneak out you walk and, in. And listen, how many people go to money those, and yeah. feel like you well, did something? Well, yeah. How many people go to those churches for six months and then leave, and no one knew they were there, and no one knew they left? Right. Yeah. Uh, a I lot. Mean, that's that is a. I, I I cannot imagine how anyone can look at that problem and go, "That's fine." Like that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not fine. That's the opposite of fine. Like mm-hmm. that. And as a social scientist, not even as, like as a, as a pastor, like as a social scientist, I go, "No." Like you have taken all the good things out of church and just stripped them out. For the goal of growth and attendance and more butts and seats. And it's like, that's not what church used to be about. And it, it, you're not giving the people what they need, which is this social connection, which we're all craving at a deep level. That's mm-hmm. that's interesting that you say that, like talking about the wall, because that, that's one of the things that I, I've always wanted. Like, you're right. The wall is lower for the evangelical church because mm-hmm. what's the thing you don't want to do? Really have to talk to Sister Ethel or whoever. And so what do they do? They dim the lights. You don't really, you know what I mean? It's darker in there. Have a loud band, super charismatic, and the the interactions that you have with other people can be very brief. Like that, I mean, we went to, I, I tried several churches when I lived in Nashville area, and it was, that was almost the way it was every single time. I don't, I don't remember going into a sanctuary that wasn't dark. And I, I didn't even realize it, but I liked it better because I didn't have to talk to anybody. Maybe they wouldn't recognize me or I recognize them. And it was just so much easier. That wall is so low. And, but what that takes away is I don't actually have to make the connection. If I made the connection, I would be better off as a human. I even know that, but it's way easier and lazier for me to just to avoid it. Superficial, even yeah. in my church. <laughs> yeah. We call that like vertical versus horizontal faith. Like vertical faith is like you and God. Like it's theological things. Like you like you you like want to pray. Like praying is a very like vertical thing. But like horizontal stuff is like you know visiting your neighbors. Uh, you know going to church stuff. Right. Like we we've made faith all about the vertical and we forgot the horizontal part. Like yeah. that people matter. Like people matter to us. People matter to God. Like people matter to a church. Like it's become so much easier. And, and I think like non-denominational churches. Listen, I get it. They want to grow. It's so much fun to grow and grow and great. You know. But at the end of the day, like what are you left with? Right. Are you left with like a lot of people who are like marginally committed to your church is that what you want because that's what you're cooking up like that's the the end goal for the model they've created i I had a quick question i know you do a lot of graphs and stuff like that one of the graphs i was reading uh that you did was the the growth of the no religion affiliation and it seems that it was pretty steady uh i think the graph starts at around 1972 or something around 1990s when it starts really increasing was there something that happened in the 90s that caused the nuns to start growing yeah, that's when uh, the religious right really hit its stride, man. If you look at the, the evangelical line at the same time, like they jumped, they hit their peak at like 28.9% in 1993. Like they had this huge bump in growth yep. at that time. And I think that like to say that one thing is not related to the other thing would just be missing the point, right? I think what happened was as as the loudest voices in American Christianity became the most conservative evangelical voices in American Christianity, a lot of people who are marginally attached mainline Protestants and marginally attached evangelicals go, whoa, dude, Jerry Falwell doesn't speak for me and Pat Robertson saying nutty things and I don't want to keep defending those guys to my friends and stuff. And really, I don't believe that stuff that much anyway. And like, I only go once a month. So you know what? I'm out. Like I'm checking out now because it's easier. I don't have to defend myself when I'm a nun 
uh, versus being one of these, you know, right wing conservative Christians. That's also when the, you know, the religious right got very politically active too. Like, you know, the contract with America was 1994. The Republicans took the house with Newt Gingrich. I mean, politics shifted hard to the right, um, especially among the Republican Party uh, in the in the mid 90s, too. So I think all those things sort of work together to drive a lot of moderates out of evangelicalism and mainline Protestant Christianity at the same time. Yeah, that I'm it, depressed it is fascinating now because of what you said. It's just now starting to sink in what you said about the more you do church, the more you wind up doing politics. Well, yeah, but we, I mean, that's not making you one thing or another. Like, we just want you to be more politically active because it makes you, like, it makes democracy more legitimate if you're active in it. Like, we want you to go, like, do a rally. I don't care who you rally for. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's hmm. immaterial to me. Like, I just want you to vote. I don't care, I don't care who you vote for, to be honest with you. I, I just want you to go to a city council meeting or a, a school board meeting. You know, like, yeah. being active in your community is good for you and mm-hmm. for your community. You Ryan, know? you're talking to the wrong people right now. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I'm going to say that I don't well, vote, don't want to vote, don't want to vote. I don't care while. if other people vote but i'm not i'm not at all politically active i seek not to be in fact but i don't think i disagree with you but i'm i'm struggling because there's a healthy and unhealthy version of it i'm not against people being politically active if that's what they care about but what i am concerned about is in the same way that politics is 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 becoming entertainment is 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 the issue to me so politics as entertainment replacing sports Sports? That is not a good sign. Sports <laughs> declining and people finding the, the blood and the battle and the victory in their team in yeah. politics is not a good thing. And that is what's happening. And what I also would connect with that is that seems that that also means the more you get there's people that are attracted to church for the wrong reasons in the first place is what I'm suggesting. That there are people that just want team, tribal, blood, win. And so church gives them some of that, and then they're most likely to find that kind of church, and then they're going to keep on going to find the ultimate, which is the politics, the pure power, and the team, you know. And that's that's the the way I see all that stuff. So I'm not big fans of 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 any of it. On the other hand, the idea of people caring about issues and being politically active from their issue point of view that they care about or involved in local community, and then hope to make national impact. Well, that's that's the people that should be involved in politics. I hope more people do that. The term you're talking about is political hobbyism, which is like politics becomes a hobby. Like Mm -hmm. we just like I love like watching like MSNBC every night and Rachel Maddow owning owning the conservatives and all that. Hobby doesn't convey the darkness of it that that I feel. But yes, that concept. Yeah, yeah, like that's like where it's sport, right? But Mm -hmm. I think like listen, Karen Armstrong with this book called Fields of Blood, where she basically like takes this question on like has religion caused all the violence in the world? Because that's like a big like you know atheist argument, right? Like we get rid of religion, like war is going to go away. And basically, she argues if we get rid of religion, it's going to become sports mm-hmm. or politics mm-hmm. or tribe or race mm-hmm. or, you know, pick one of the above. Like, we have to join stuff. Like, it's in our right. very nature to, like, create us versus them. Like, we have to orient ourselves in social space somehow. And that's how we do it, whether it's who we vote for or what church we go to or what, you know, what race we are, or whatever, what music we like, like whatever it is, like we have to orient ourselves in social space. And I think politics has sort of filled this weird void where people, they can get politics 24 hours a day now, which is like a whole new world. Used to be you watch the nightly news and you might read the paper. You might get an hour of politics a day. You can literally pump your brain full of politics 16 hours a day if you want to every single day of your life. And that is so scary to me. Like people are amazed. Like I'm a political scientist. I don't even know what's going on in the world half the time. Like I have like retreated from that a lot because people think that like knowledge and passion are related to each other positively. It's actually the opposite way. 
like the more I care about social science, the less I care about politics. Like it's driven me away from all that stuff. And I'm more interested in being a truth teller to everybody, right? Both parties, yeah, as opposed yeah. to being like in the tank for one party or another. Interesting. So if, if it's political hobbyism, it's, it's, it's all just behavior is what it just, we're, we're built for these behaviors and these, uh, these things are just different vehicles for expressing it. But the concern for me is a giant megachurch where you're disconnected from is not a good place for that participation and a political movement that you don't understand, but it just doesn't matter. And, you know, it's not really affecting you and you're more in it for just who you're against or how it feels. And it doesn't even affect you. It's such a waste to me versus you caring about an issue in your community, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the way, or, or your own personal faith and what it means about what you do and how you live and think. Those are all good things because they're you, in your yeah. realm. You know, a war term I hate, owning the libs. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's not a good thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you, if your like mission right. in life is to make the other party look bad, like you need to seriously reevaluate why you're on this planet. Yeah. Like, right. is, is that really like I take religion out of it? It's like, is that the reason you think that whatever puts you on this planet, puts you on this planet is to make the other party look bad? Like that is where we've gotten to in this world. And, and, and it's that is fun. It's, it's, something. So, it's just so it's so toxic. And but I don't listen. Going back to non-denominational megachurches, by the way, they're super conservative politically, too. Like mm -hmm. they're people think that like they're more moderate because they're trying to be more attractional. No, 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 no. They are just as conservative as any Southern Baptist church is. And so and they're suburban, which That's is where like a lot of like the the voting like there's if there's going to be a change in American politics going to happen in the suburbs. And those are pocketed with these large megachurches that are basically 75 or 80 percent Republicans at mm -hmm. this point. So mm -hmm. like that's even feeding it. But I, here's what I would also argue. That's also making those churches less attractive to people of color and liberals of, of all races. Right. So like, how do you, I want to know how they square that idea. Like we are 80% Republicans, but we're open to all, you know, you can come here if you're, you know, not, not a Republican. It's like, aren't you going to figure it out really quickly that you don't belong there? Um, this is, can I like, if I could teach anybody anything about what I've learned in the last like two years doing this study is that white Protestant Christianity has become overwhelmingly Republican. And that is unusual in the history of America. So in 2018, 85% of white Protestants went to a church where Donald Trump's approval rating was above 50%. Okay. Mm -hmm. The national average is 42%. 85% of white Protestants go to a church where it's above 50%, which means that is Republican stronghold. So if you are a moderate or a Democrat or an anti-Trump Republican, and you want to be a Protestant Christian in America, there's basically no place left for you to go. And that is objectively bad if you are a Christian. Mm -hmm. If you want to see the kingdom of God grow in America, there has to be room for moderates and liberals to go to churches and more and more there's no place for them to go and those places are going extinct every single day and they're being replaced by the, the mega church that's 80% republican. Are the Mike is, makes is, right, is, is some of that political influence is that coming from the pulpit too like how are churches expressing political like it seems like in lots of ways it's negative and there maybe there are good ways too that the church can be political but is that 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 Trump leaning or that republican leaning is that being expressed through the pulpit and I guess membership, obviously, but the pulpit is mostly or. So that's that's something that like I had to come to terms with reading more and more social science literature. We think that, you know, when I when I was an outsider, I thought the most important time for church was during the service, right? From like the intro to the conclusion. 
here's what I know now. It's a thing that where you talk in the pews to someone before church and you talk in the aisle and someone after church and you walk through the parking lot and see NRA bumper stickers and MAGA bumper stickers and you see uh, uh, an advertisement in the bulletin to go to like a pro-life rally, right? right? Like politics is subtle, yeah. right? Like, yes. but we're very good at subconsciously picking up the cues that are laid down by other people. And I would argue that almost none of this is pulpit driven or leadership driven. It's actually at the, at the, at the laity level in the pews where people just talk to each other and you get a sense really quickly of where you stand politically. And that's where most of the socialization happens. It's not during the formal worship time. Right. It's the 20 minutes before and the 20 minutes after. It was the yeah. totality of what the pulpit and the messaging and the brand attracts, but the actual work's being done. Yeah, well, the, well, the pastors there. do nothing mm-hmm. to turn it the other way, though. Right. I mean, let's right. be honest. Like, these non-denominational churches, they know how their bread's buttered, and it's buttered by Republicans. Like, if 75% of people in your pews are going to be Republicans, you're not going to preach an anti-Trump sermon the week before, you know, election day. You're going to shut your mouth and hope to God that things work out okay, right? Yeah, like, totally. because it's just not in your best—I mean, uh, Greg Boyd at the, the church in Minneapolis, he wrote, you know, preached a four-part sermon series called uh, America is Not a Christian Nation, and like a third of his church left. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. like no one wants to hear that right. stuff. And so right. at some point you are behest or you're beholden to the people in your pews and you have to tell them. And I don't care what anybody says. I'm prophetic. No, you're not because you want a job like you pastors. People don't think about those pastors can be fired for any reason at any point with no legal recourse and oftentimes no severance. So, I mean, your entire incentive structure is set up in such a way to tell people what they want to hear. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, no one at the pulpit's going to upset the apple cart, especially if it's 80% Republicans. You're just going to let that sort of exist and not do anything to speak truth to power or try to pull things back to the center or anything. You're just going to let people do what they do. And then you can throw your hands up and go, I had nothing to do with this. You know, like right. I didn't I didn't cause this, which you didn't, but you also didn't do anything to make it better either. Is this uh is this explain the dominance of Republicans or this shift like this? Is this explain seeing some of the the different you know, Trump and them really trying to figure out how to cap it's just going to change the nature of politics. Now that you have a captive bubble that you can appeal directly to with their things, you get Trump pretend to be a Christian or Con- the Kanye stuff. Or the- did you see the Carrie Job and whatever video of those people at the White House? They got yesterday. a lot of flack for that. It, yeah. Let's play that in, in a minute when we get done with the interview. I want to, Reva, can you look for that uh, video? I thought that was really funny. So we'll roll the audio from that. Carrie Job and them at the White House. But is that explain that kind of thing a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Like it's Absolutely. direct political action yeah. calculated they love to go. Power. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that Trump, Trump to me is the greatest like testing of evangelical Republican coalition ever because they fielded the least evangelical candidate they could ever field on the Republican side. I mean, think about who you're, uh, who it's been. John McCain, who is sort of a moderate Republican, but like not antagonistic towards evangelicals. Romney, who was a Mormon, but a very good, like, you know, moral high ground person. You could have had Ted Cruz, who was like a dyed in the wool evangelical. You could have had uh, Marco Rubio, who's also the same way. And who do you pick? You pick, li- or you could pick Kasich, who was like a conservative Catholic. Those are your choices. And who do you pick? You pick the least religious Republican we've had since Ronald Reagan, and evangelicals love him just as much as anybody else, mm-hmm. right? To me, it just sort of laid bare the fact that evangelicals are Republicans first and evangelicals second. I think that's a key thing that we don't think about is it used to be that religion was the first lens that we looked at the world through. So like we saw an event happen in the world, we would read our Bible and talk to our pastor and think about our theology and go, how would Jesus respond to that? And now we flip it and politics is our first lens. And so we read the Bible now through a political lens. And I've said people, you know, read the Bible and go, yeah, there's nothing in here about helping refugees or strangers. 
And I'm like, what? what? Like, have you read Deuteronomy, man? Like, uh, like you must be willfully reading it in a certain kind of way to ignore the passages you don't like. There's just no other way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And the, the, that's the problem is that politics has become our religion. Yeah. It's become our paradigm. Right. And that is like, listen, I'm an old school, like mainline, pro, like, listen, it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about the Bible. Like we should have a moral theology based on our understanding of scripture and truth and not on who's in office right now or what position they have on Medicare for all. Uh, that's just irrelevant to me. But unfortunately, I, so many of my friends have just been captured, right? Just yeah. completely captured by politics. And they stop, they stop reading the Bible in a theological way and they read it in a political way. And I, right. man, it's just, it just, it bums me out to no end. So the lens being, I, oh, there's some uncertainty and we live in uncertain times and it's scary. So I go first to my primary lens, which always would have been, I'm a Christian. So I mm-hmm. need to say, well, let's see, well, how would Jesus do? What does the Bible say? What a biblical character? That's how you're thinking. And then you've kind of, and that's who you trust. And that's how you, react to the situation. Then it goes to politics. You go, what would Donald Trump say? What did I hear at the press secretary? What's on Twitter? And then the funnier one than that is uh, the <laughs> your primary lens is the one where what would own the libs the most? Right. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll determine my stance after who I hate, which is even worse than your political views is your politi- your enemy <laughs> in well, light and, of that is even worse place to assess my veins yeah. you know like that right, phrase yeah. injected in my veins I'm like what are you talking about man <laughs> like people would post memes of like people crying when Hillary Clinton lost I'm like come on man like why do you hate yourself so much All right. like you you gotta work on you first man here but I'll I'll give you one more piece that I think is super interesting which I just I just read this book that's coming out um, this author, author argues that one of the reasons Trump came to power is because all the major structures in, 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 in Protestant Christianity have dissolved over the mm-hmm. last 40 or 50 years. Like yep. mainline Protestants used to be very powerful, very well organized, very well funded, and they could really change policy, you know, people, how people viewed policy 40 years ago on issues like, you know, racial equality and things like that. Now mainliners are, you know, like an afterthought. And what do we have on the evangelical side? We've got no, like there's no structure there. It's all just a bunch of random islands of evangelical. There's no one to stand up to Trump on the Protestant side and say, that's not what we're about, man. Muslim bans are bad and religious freedom is good, but you know, like we don't, there's no structure that exists in American Protestant Christianity to push back against the political machine. That's basically nudging it around the political spectrum. Now. Mm-hmm. That makes a ton of sense. This is, this is great. And I love somebody that talks fast and gets a lot in like you. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I really this has appreciate been awesome, it. <laughs> and I have a bunch more I want to do. We're not going to do it today. I want to do it another time. But the other thing that you, talk about is and this is i re- i want a whole another hour to do it so i want you to come back is what i'm saying but okay. the uh you did a thing with language studies and how the difference in men and women preaching yeah. and and how you study the language with natural language processing and that kind of, i just i want to talk about that but i want to talk about some deeply so we're not going to do it today but thank you so much for coming on the show and getting through this much information this quickly with a really good perspective it's right in line i think our audience will f- find it very helpful as i did so thank you ryan keep and, up and the thanks, good work and, and where can thank people you, find you, you and, and read all your stuff uh, you can find, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet out graphs like four or five times a week at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E. My website is ryanburge.net. And I founded and write for a website called Religion in Public, religionandpublic.blog. It's not just me, but other academics who do religion and politics. We write about our work and make it accessible to an audience. Uh, I write for Religion News Service. I write for Christianity Today. I write for Barna. 
you know, it just the hits keep on coming. I'm yeah. I'm always I'm always willing to impact the conversation and try to bring some data to the to the question. Yeah. Yes. I, I definitely want to have you back because I am so excited. I think excited has to be the word for next year and what will happen with Trump and the the political landscape and all that stuff. I think it's just going to be unbelievable i guess i mean you have a prediction of like is this the do you think this is the craziest most wildest election we'll ever see or i'm sure there's been other ones that have been wild and maybe you know before media was like it is but i mean just in the media area era like yeah this, uh, yeah i don't know i mean i think it's i here's what's crazy i don't know who the democrat nominee is going to be yeah like i, mm-hmm. I legitimately don't like I, I read stuff where i'm like yeah biden's gonna win it like he's got he's ahead but then i read stuff that says like bernie's like doing surprisingly well in a lot of places especially populous states like california and new york where you can really run up the count but then pete and elizabeth warren are both doing you know pretty well in them i mean there's there could be four different candidates right now that could win the nomination right. And then there's the impeachment thing looming over Trump, which I don't know how bad it's going to hurt him, but he also is only polling at 40% with an economy that's the best it's ever been. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's like crazy if you think that about is it. That's really wild. His, his approval rating is 40% and his unemployment rate is 3.6%, which is the lowest it's been in my lifetime. Uh, you know, his, his approval rating should be like 60, easily 60, if he would just shut up and get out of his own way. But right. I mean, I mean, that's what's, listen, there's been so much, like whenever 2016 happened, there was this, Nate Silver tweeted this great thing. He goes, there's going to be so many political science dissertations to start with this line. For every election except 2016, we know that dot, 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 <laughs> dot. Yeah. Right. Like it is the true outlier wow. of, because he did everything wrong that we knew was right in terms of fundraising and messaging and debates and campaigning and everything. And the dude still won. Right. So did you like, think he would win? Did you have any inkling? No, 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 no. I mean, like I looked at all the models and like I thought probably 75% chance Hillary wins. But, you know, we learned a lot about polling in 2016, which is that a lot of Trump voters were shy Trump voters. Right. Like they wouldn't pronounce oh, yeah, their yeah, their yeah. vote when they wouldn't want to say it. No, they didn't want to tell the pollster they're going to vote for Trump. And That's I think the a silent lot, spiral. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Right. Spiral of silence. But if you really sit down and look at it, Trump actually only won by 70,000 votes. Uh, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So if you would have moved 70,000 votes the other way, then he would have lost the Electoral College. Like, so it was a very, very close election wow. uh, from an electoral perspective. But also, I don't think it's good for democracy that more people that voted in 2016 did not want Donald Trump to win, and he won. Like, I don't care how you feel about, like, you're a Republican or whatever. Like, right. that is not a sustainable path for our democracy. If the, the more people vote for one party and they lose every single election, that's not good structurally no. for our country. And I yeah. think those are – but the problem is, I tell my students this all the time, there's no adults in the room. You know, like, there's no one in Congress yeah. who's like, you know what? I don't care about my party right now. I just care about what's right for the country. Like, no one says that anymore. Right. Yeah, we're you past know? that. Like I need some adults in the room and go, you know what? It might hurt our party to get rid of the Electoral College or at least rethink the Electoral College, but we should do it for the good of the country, not for the good of my party right now. They would be just destroyed all over Twitter and, you know, uh, Fox News. Right. But that's what we need. We need more adults. Like I just miss an era of like I miss George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole, you know, like guys, <laughs> guys who just wanted Bob to do Dole was awesome. Yeah, Bob Dole was awesome because he was a Republican, but he wasn't nuts. Right. He was right. willing to work with the other side. He's willing to compromise. He was willing to to raise taxes, for goodness sakes. Right. Like, we don't have any people like that in Congress anymore. It's all I'm right. You're wrong. We're not going to do anything. And that's such a deadly way to govern. And yeah. um, it, it bums me out, really. 
Yeah, it's yeah. going to be inter- very entertaining, scary, horrific, wild, all of those things. So we'd love to have you back, talk about all this stuff if we could, maybe in a, a month or two, if, if you'd be open to it. Cause it. This was great. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Love talking, guys. It's my favorite thing to do in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ryan Burge. Ladies and gentlemen, the Surge Burge. I bet he used to get that a lot, but that was just great. Man, I enjoyed that. He's awesome. I think uh, I don't think we've even encountered or used the word quant before on the podcast, but uh, that that quality is. I mean, he, he strikes me as somebody that's in the territory of. It started to emerge to me to understand that a lot of people are attracted to this podcast, but I think because they resonate with us in the sense that they feel like if we always talk about school and these things, you know, how it just doesn't fit certain people or serve them well. Right. Now, here's one of these guys who thinks very independently, is a much, very much a self-learner, self-directed, all that stuff, which is a lot of our audience. A lot of people resonate with us. A lot of people have struggles with church and authority, except for he's also hyper... Uh, He's not the creative, free spirit, unorganized. He's both a self-learner and a rule uh, follower, organized, uh, follow the instructions type guy. And when you put those two together, that's that's what you get, I think. I think that's pretty amazing. So he's just able to achieve a lot and communicate a lot because he's focused on it and he's disciplined. And so that's yeah. I think that's a really good that's that's kind of what I'm I feel like I kind of think like that I just can't get anything done maybe I should just if I if, I, I long for if I could have had more discipline or something but is that opposite to the creative? Uh, no, Can you have I mean both? I think his creative yeah I think he is creative is just funneled a different way and mm-hmm. then and then you know I don't know if, I don't know if he's a musician or whatever or what kind of art he would do oh yeah but that's what i'm saying he would be good at anything he does he has hyper ability to focus and be uh excited about those things Mm -hmm. like he's like he said he tweets graphs all the time and he likes it because it's intrinsically valuable and 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 all i can think is i'm jealous Mm -hmm. i'm just so jealous i can barely read the thing Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i can barely read it and he's (laughs) not only making them He's can't wait to tweet it out or something like that. Whole thing is just phenomenal. I mean, that's just wow. I wish I could do that. I would. I would kill to do that instead of write a song. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, can we? Uh, and I hope. Uh, yeah, I'd like to get him back. I, I think that'd be. Oh, terrific. we will for um, sure. What, what's re- the uh, Carrie Job thing? Yeah, it was. Can we do yeah. that? What's the? What's so, the? I don't think I've heard it. So from what I, I, I just saw it, but it's basically. Carrie Job and the other guy, Cody, somebody, I don't know who he is. They're worship leader people. I know yeah. who Carrie Job is. Cody Carnes. And they just had a video from them at the at the White House. And it's just it's just it's just fun to listen to how they talk. And then like, <laughs> let's just play it and talk about it. It's just it's satisfying to listen to how how they talk. If you think about calibrating to what people are saying and why and what's the reason, like look at the big picture, it just feels so bizarre. It's so funny. Right. Okay. Hey, it's Carrie Job and Cody Carnes, and we are worship leaders. We live in Nashville. We've just gotten to be a part of the group today that uh, just got to be a part of praying in the cabinet room and in the Oval Office for President Trump and got to listen to a lot of the uh, faith briefing of things that are going on in the White House and um, just religious freedoms and things like that. But the thing that moved me the most is just how everyone is so for making sure we're 
changing people's lives and not leaving those that are marginalized and those that have been trafficked and those that are, uh, for sometimes I think those of us that don't work in the White House, it could look really big and like mm -hmm. something that we can't really end, but they are working to end these things and to yeah. change these things. And I've just been in tears all day. It's yes. been incredible. I'm just so thankful to be a part of this today and to see what God's doing in our White House. Yes, we've gotten to worship. We've gotten to pray for the president. And uh, I just have been so encouraged today because there are so many good things happening yes. out of this house. So many good things happening for the faith community and for the world. Yeah. And uh, things that we all believe in in the faith community that can change the world yeah. are being supported and they're happening in this house. And so we're just encouraged. And we've had just such an amazing time here today. God is moving. It's very encouraging. It's beautiful. Okay. So... I don't know if it's the same for everybody else, but my interest is all in speech, speech patterns, and how, how do you get people to talk like that for what reason and what way? Ah, wow. What, what do you hear there? What do I hear? Uh, yeah. What is it, going on? Well, <laughs> I mean, okay, what I'm saying is I'm looking at it from the frame of this. I play music. I go places. People put cameras in front of me and say, say things. Yeah. That, you know, like I've been places before. And in this case, somebody asked them to shoot that video right. and they had to like perform for the camera to some degree. So I, I, I understand that. But right. what are, but the, but the way you perform on camera or on tape in a given situation, there's so many reasons, like you can be forced into it. You can do it. You can have your own mission. Like what is, what is causing these people to talk like this in that situation? So what I've are they, heard, what is, I, are they attempting to do? I've heard that everybody online's kind of giving them shit for this and kind of mad at them or whatever for other reasons and this and that reasons and all that stuff. But to me, it sounds like they got to go to the White House. It was really awesome. And then somebody said, yeah, film this. And they're maybe riding just a little bit of a high. And they're talking about the issue things that they talked about that seem important. But the, their language and the way they're saying it, it, yeah, it does feel calculated and meant to express how awesome Trump is, I guess, or this administration is. That's what I, my takeaway is, man, that, that Trump guy is a real Christian and he's kicking ass for us. That's what, it, that's right? the intended message from them. Yeah. They, they're, they are used as a, I mean, pr yeah, I'm just saying by its function. Right. Without analyzing those people and their intent from the sure. abstract, it seems clear that Mr. Genius, Donald Trump, as, is just taking these people and using them as the vehicle instead of him having to talk directly to Christians right. earn their trust. He can't even know how to talk like that. Yeah. Donald right. Trump cannot talk like that. <laughs> so he gets these stooges to come do it. And whatever he has to do for them all that day to get them to make that video and put it out, that earns you know, I mean, he takes the trust right. of Carrie Job and she's and all she's gonna talk about is God is moving right. and the trafficking and these things and they're ending it. What what things? Why are you been yeah. crying all day? <laughs> I know. You've been crying all day because they're ending these things uh, that are what? Related to trafficking and God is moving? Right. The something? That was the best part. I mean, we didn't have, we don't have, I don't have time to explain it right now, but me cry, him good, us pray. God all moving. All the positive God things move. here have been making me cry White all House, day. Therefore, White House you guys you know, should feel just, like you're being taken care of and good things are happening. Yeah, but it's not even, <laughs> it is not at all, there's a clear message that they want you to get. Oh, it's no. just word just association. Well, I thought it's that just was, yeah. Trump. I, I thought Traffic. it was interesting, the word God they move. use, they use yeah. faith community. So, you know, they said faith community. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, that's hilarious. just like, a, even it's broad and, and all yeah. of that. I mean, it's just... It's but how broad. could they get in that spot? Is what I'm asking. Like I play Christian music. I do. Yeah. I'm a Christian musician. I'm a worship leader. 
How do you get there? What do you think you would have said? How, how do you get there? <laughs> how do you say, I write music, I like it, I sing to God, I help other people. How do you get there in that situation? And were they uncomfortable? Maybe. Maybe they had I mean, to. They, might have been been, they, they felt pressure. Trump might have been on the other side of the camera, for all we know. He's so, that, I mean, he's, well, he's, I know. Like, can you, I mean, think about what he's able to, like, think about that. Like, you don't want to be on his bad side. I know. He invites you to the White House. You go, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go hear what they have to say. It sounds like they're talking about. Human trafficking. I mean, who knows how, what? what right. But by the time you get there, and then you spend all day, and then it's intense, and it's this, and you make. I mean, who knows what it's like from their point of view? But either way, uh, it's the most uncalibrated, this, useless, no way to know anything about. I mean, you, it's so far off from plain communication of a human. It's, right. it's what is it? Does Trump only look at them as tools and peons? Yeah. And they, yeah, oh, wait, I'll get those Christian people here. She sure can't sing good. People love her. They're going to love her. They're going to love her. I'm going to get her to say this. And she's going to no. talk so big about us. And that's and he doesn't even think about her as like a human or he doesn't a even Christian think that far. or anything. He, right? thinks, he thinks they trust her. Yeah. I need them. Right. Make it happen. Moving on. Wow. Associate her with me. Get the keywords. Make get the biggest evangelical you find. That's the cutest. That's the sweetest. That's the most believable. Do whatever you got to do. Invite them to the White House. Schmooze them. Get them to say our talking point. Moving on. That's what it is. Something like that. I mean, it's right. not. He's not interested in them no. in any way or their music or. He, he never heard it. I mean, of course not. It's I mean, like that. It, you think uh, talking after talking with Ryan and everything like the he, he's right. It is. Republican first, political party first, religion second, right? Like, I mean, yeah. they are just going to blindly accept his Christianity. Like, it, like if you say Donald Trump isn't a Christian, people get real mad. They they, they act like you're being a bad person. Like, right. there's Kanye. no, you, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah, he they they couldn't be possibly lying or using Christianity uh, in a bad way, right? Like they, they are doing it good. They wouldn't be talking about it if they weren't using it in a good way. You know what I mean? Like I, I could learn from them. I should talk about my faith more in public, like they do, not the other way around. But I mean, that that's just so bizarre. You cannot think of him as a good man, a good godly Christian. I mean, how dare anybody they don't need do that? To think that it's just I don't know. It's like you can't say he's not a Christian, but you couldn't convince them I am one. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, one hundred percent. Well, I'll tell you people who aren't fooled by old Donald Trump, and that's the BC Clubbers, Matt. They are. Uh, they, they don't get fooled by no Trump or Melania. They don't well, do that. That Melania, you know, that Melania tries to pull the wool over your eyes. She ain't going to do it to the BC Clubbers. And the BC Club is awesome, wonderful, great people. I, I will tell you the best part about it is uh, real and true friendships and that people, I mean, this has been a tough year for the BC podcast and uh, – BC podcast, Bad Christian, and um, people have really been encouraging often and caring, and I consider a lot of these folks uh, friends. I mean, I really do. Some of them just lurk, and you know, those, those lurkers in the club, y'all need to start talking up a little bit more, but there's a lot of folks in there, and there's new people joining every day. If you join the club, not only do you support this podcast and uh, getting great guests and and setting up the next con conference con all this stuff but uh also you get an episode every single day called the daily dose which is even a little bit more irreverent and crazy and loose uh than the main episode that you just listened to so i'll tell you a couple of folks that just joined uh recently we got adam hopkins stephanie lachelle or lachelle mm -hmm. 
She should Lack- change it to whatever you Lackle. say. That's not right. Lackle. <laughs> St- Steph Lackle. Uh, Neil Lamont. Dylan Leatherwood. Matt Hernandez. Michael Koppel. Jennifer Hungerford. And Paul Wheeler. All right. Leatherwood. Leatherwood. Man, is that a good last name? Yeah. D. <laughs> Leatherwood. I know. I'm How jealous masculine. of that. <laughs> yeah, but what about Stephanie like Lackle? A, no, I like that. But Leatherwood <laughs> is like, a, it's a something between a, that's like a, a new high-end cologne or something. Oh, like Those yeah. are the essence of something you'd put oh, in the description of, yeah. a, of a high-end cologne, leather. Right. Sandal, Johnny Depp selling that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's out there in the desert selling it's an it. essence, you know. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> a this, manly essence of Leatherwood. This winter, Leatherwood <laughs> by Dracar Noir. I used to wear the hell out of some Jakar Noir, boy. That was that was my jam. And now I haven't worn it. What, Matt, do you wear cologne? I Do you own cologne? <laughs> I don't uh, own any. I haven't owned I, any. I can't even imagine myself going and buying it. Maybe I should. I might probably like it. I'm, you know, th- things like deodorant and cologne, if, I, <laughs> if, if, somebody, if somebody gives me, gives no, me those it. things You, you said everything that needed to be said. <laughs> To me, when you said the word deodorant, and I, in relation to you, I get it. No need to go any further. We all understand. Just, every listener, every person immediately understands. There's no need to answer further about it, it cologne. It's just a frequency <laughs> issue. I mean, I do own both cologne and oh. deodorant, yeah. but they and last you, you, me for years. Yeah, decades. I mean, they last for just, if a stick of deodorant lasts me well, a night you got that bottle of cologne, and it was such a nice high school graduation present. Right, I, that's true. I got the, I had a, somebody gave me a bottle of Tommy Hilfiger cologne, and I had it for ten to fifteen years, and I didn't have another one. Oh. But I, I'm not saying I never wore it, but that's how much I wear it. The worst part about all of this is at every Emmy show now, somebody comes up and smells you, or you get them to smell you and go back and tell people that you don't stink. I'm just like, okay, good God. Well, this, that's well, they usually report it that I don't. It's always a surprise, though. Because you, t- yeah, there's always a. Sometimes few. I smell a little bit, but that's that's just the, what I'm okay with. All right, let's get the hell out of here, stank ass. <laughs> Let me tell you mm, what that ass do. Hey, let me tell you. Yesterday I was walking, walking down the street There was a mighty fine ass that I wanted to meet Let me tell you, yeah His name was Kevin I was in heaven What that ass do when it's a front of you? What that ass do when it's a front of you? 